Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells. Hello and welcome to That Privacy Podcast, the podcast created for people with an interest in data privacy and those working in privacy roles, whether that's part of a privacy team, in legal, compliance, IT, risk, or at an executive level. My name's David Longford, and I run OneTrust Data Guidance. And as ever, in this podcast, I'm joined by my colleagues, Alexis Katafidis, Global Privacy Director at OneTrust Data Guidance, and Eduardo Roosteran, Partner and Global Co-Head of the Hogan Levels Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice. Welcome to you both. We join you today, not from our uh, normal setting, Eduardo's offices at Hogan Levels in London, but from our homes, which is uh, where I presume most of you are also listening to this. With normal life temporarily paused due to the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, just like everybody else, we're adapting and and carrying on with our day-to-day activities, which includes recording this podcast. But before I start, the first question I do want to address is something that's nothing to do with privacy. It's more to do with uh, podcasts themselves. And that question is around tone, the tone we strike during our hour-long chat today and in doing a recording or uh, broadcast itself. We've thought hard about how to get this right. So the question is something that I'm sure other people who create uh, media, whether that's TV or radio shows, are also thinking about. And we discussed amongst ourselves, should we do a podcast with what's going on outside? How should we speak about what's happening? What's the right tone to, to strike? And with so many people suffering at the moment, how do you come across as empathetic and also do what the podcast is intended to do? Notwithstanding, we often mix fairly serious points in our recordings with having a good time and and we have a laugh together during the podcast. So as we've said, what tone is appropriate? In another sense, one could say that this is absolutely the right time to do a podcast on privacy, given that so many aspects of our personal and professional lives that are related to privacy are impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. And all of the big issues we discussed in our normal work, like employment, cybersecurity, data subject rights, take on a new dimension now and deserve a closer look. In short, there's no simple answer. And we're hoping that today's podcast comes across just as it is. Three people who have a, a real interest in privacy's place in the world from a very human standpoint and who enjoy meeting up to discuss it for an hour every couple of months. It's as simple as that. And we hope that you find the things we talk about interesting or perhaps beneficial to your work. So let's get started. Hi, Alexis, Eduardo. How are each of you today? Hey David. Yeah, doing well. Um, obviously, as you as you mentioned, uh, getting used to working from home. Um, definitely a little bit of uh, a different pace. Lots of lots of video calls. I mean, we were we're on a video call at the moment. Um, obviously, this time uh, just audio that's coming through for our listeners. But um, yeah, it's been it, it's been obviously a, a big change. Um, but I think. You know, in some ways, uh, and we were talking, you know, last week together, um, able to connect um, with the software, the technology that's out there today, um, you know, still able to spend some face time with everybody, which is always really valuable. I know we really value that at um, our organization, that face-to-face contact, obviously, uh, not as uh, in-person, but, you know, at least it's something. Yes, and the same here. Um, here I am at home, week um, four already of our working from home routine. 
And my entire global team is doing exactly the same across all these time zones. And I think the the challenge, of course, is to keep this going. It's easy to do it for a week, maybe for a couple of weeks. And then uh, the the lack of true social interaction, despite the wonders of, of technology, makes it really hard. And the motivation needs to be distracted from somewhere. And I think, yeah, having a this type of discussion among among friends and colleagues and trying to address the kind of issues that, aside from the big global crisis that the entire world is facing right now, are also part of our day-to-day life. And the reality is that life goes on and we need to try to, to do what we can to to retain an element of normality. So my message to, to my team every day is, look, we haven't gone away. We're here still to to help each other, to to work together. We're still a team. And, um, you know, let's just rely on technology to, uh, to adapt to the situation. And I'm sure there will be a time where uh, things will go back to normal. Well, of course, nobody knows that. Nobody in the world knows that. But in the meantime, let's uh, let's try to to continue our work and our discussions and our our intellectual debates. And, and I think it's in that spirit that uh, I'm very glad that the three of us are getting together today to to discuss this across the wires and ac- across the this tech this technology. So let's let's go for it. Yeah, it's a really good point in the world that we are um, perhaps ever more reliant on technology. Um, we've really increased our reliance perhaps in the last few weeks. And we've also, I, I, I've been thinking abstractly, we've all, and many people listening, have been part of this mass migration, if you like, from millions of workers worldwide who've um, very quickly adapted to move, uh, move from their offices, where they kind of have their, their base every day for their work, to their homes and, and combine the personal and the professional and the the same route. So this very sudden change has created this need for organizations to create new or adapt their existing infrastructure, um, including technology, so workers can operate normally. And, and that's not just technology and digital infrastructure, but also the processes and the ways in which we work, which are, of course, now very different if you're working, you know, from your from your desk in your living room or your, you know, if you have an office at home, fantastic. But there's a lot of kind of um, change involved in that in that migration. So what we're going to do today is start by looking um, as it's so close to home at employment and privacy. And let's just think about, you know, what's changed from a privacy perspective. So, Eduardo, let's start with you. What are you discussing with your colleagues? What are you thinking about? And um, what are you hearing within the privacy community about in, in employment issues with the, the COVID crisis? Well, um, the COVID-19 crisis itself has raised some very urgent and very direct work-related questions and the previous implications of how to fight the, the illness uh, on a global basis itself has raised um, uh, some some difficult work to do. So from that perspective, that has replaced, and I think that the same will be true for many other professionals listening to, to this right now, but that has replaced other issues, you know, and uh, two months ago, we were concerned about cookies and international data transfers and uh, uh, um, data retention mechanisms and things like that. And right now, 
we are concerned about what information can we collect. Uh, we, I don't think that the world of European data protection has spent as many hours looking at Article 9 of the GDPR and in relation to health data as in the past couple of months. So the, the, the sort of the nature of the work has shifted in, in, in a way and has um, focused a lot on, on these very topical issues that we are dealing with. And in a sense, it's just another proof of how relevant our, our area of practice is to our, our day-to-day work and our, to our real life. So, um, of course, we're still advising on cookies. We're still advising on international data transfers. But, of course, I think front, at the front of everybody's um, minds and at the top of everyone's to-do list is how to use data effectively in the context of, of dealing with this, with this illness. So that's yeah, that's a great place to start. You know, the, the big picture is how um, how is health data seen when we have such an urgent and uh, frightening emergency? You know, what are the how are the norms changed? That's kind of the first question we're trying to ask, answer, isn't it? With uh, with the COVID nineteen crisis, and then I guess from that we have other issues to do with the the consequences of it, such as employment, as we as we said. So. Um, I'm sure you've you know you've done um, a lot of kind of work with with your clients even already this year in January and February on as we say normal employment issues with privacy. But what what are some of those kind of typical things that come up when you're consulting with clients about employment and privacy that take on a new dimension in um, in the crisis, Eduardo? So the obvious issue has been um, the entitlement of employers to collect, use, disclose, retain health-related data and location-related data and interactions-related data about their employees. Because in the early days of this crisis, when it was mainly about tracing people and identifying cases and protecting those who may have been in contact with those that uh, were infected, and it seems like ages ago now, but th- that that was a priority barely a month or, or, or a month and a half ago. Mm-hmm. That those were the, the key issues. What and what um, the first thing that this crisis tested in the in the world of data protection is this big issue that has always been there of to what extent data protection is is a blocker or is an impediment to do things that are uh, unnecessary, that are sensible. And it was, in a sense, a wonderful way of just proving, proving to the world that, of course, data protection world doesn't get in the way of fighting a, a, a global illness. Yeah. Of course, data protection law is able to cope with uh, dealing with, uh, with this, sharing the right information, disclosing the right information, and it's still be a an area of law that needs to be followed and needs to be respected. So that was a very interesting first encounter for many people, and that, uh, it didn't last very long. When, but there were some attempts of saying, "You see, this is where data protection law is uh, is not helping here." And of course, our our advice has always been, and will always be, that is the wrong way of looking at this. Data protect. If you think, if you really think. The data protection law 
is going to get in the way of really doing the right things in order to to save the world and you know and to save lives that is the wrong understanding of data protection law you're, you're just not uh you're not really looking at it in the way it is and it's meant to be so um in practical terms what does that mean it means that uh one had to look at what type of information was being collected who should know about it like how it could be dealt with in a in a way that was sensitive and another thing that was relevant in those early days is that those that were unlucky enough or maybe today they are the lucky ones that were infected in 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 the early days uh it was seen as oh my goodness this person is infected and there was an element of stigma around it today when the entire world is going in that direction it means like uh the the, the other one now is going to be those of of us or, or, or those individuals who, who in, in a few weeks' time have not had the, the, the coronavirus in their bodies. Mm-hmm. So, but at the time, it was, it was, there was an element of sensitivity around disclosing too much information. And the question, yeah. the practical question is who should know and, and how to deal with that. So that, that, that was um, uh, the, the nature of the work in the early days. I was just going to say, Eduardo, how have you seen um, regulators respond? Um, because I know, you know, for example, my team, they're, you know, they're very busy over the last few weeks um, putting out updates to our clients, trying to track um, every regulator's response, not just data protection supervisory authorities, but of course, obviously, uh, health authorities, um, you know, some of the uh, health authorities, for example, in the U.S., uh, the HHS has been putting out guidance in response to uh, privacy questions that they've been getting around application of HIPAA. Obviously, over here in Europe, we're, we've been tracking what the ICO in the U.K. has been saying. Obviously, uh, the EDPB as well. What has have you have you found that there's been general consensus uh, around the guidance that's been coming from regulators? So I think we are walking towards a degree of consensus, but again, it was very interesting to see the initial reactions of the different data protection authorities around the world when perhaps like with the rest of the crisis, there was relatively little coordination of approaches. So you saw some authorities, I remember uh, the Italian Garante, for example, and the Canil in France, taking a very harsh view and saying uh, employers can, of course, not, they cannot collect uh, health data. It should be medical professionals only. And and, um, it was... It was that angle of, of a very strict and, and very um, uh, sort of trying to, to, to ensure that, I guess that what they were trying to do is to ensure that the data protection law was still on the agenda somehow and didn't disappear altogether. But then you saw perhaps slightly more lenient approaches or more realistic approaches coming from other data protection authorities. The I remember the Irish put, put out some good guidance. The ICO came came out uh, shortly after saying, look, uh, we, are, we understand, you know, in the, in, the, in the very British way in which the ICO does things, they say, look, 
um, the world is in trouble. Uh, we understand that. So we're not going to start being the harsh regulator that is completely out of sync with what is going on in the world. And pretty much they said that. So um, I think uh, the one thing that everyone I think is saying and all these views have in common is, is two things, to be honest. One, that, as I was saying earlier, data protection and privacy law does not get in the way. If you don't have to overpass it or overtake it entirely in order to deal with this. It doesn't get in the way. And uh, linked to that is the fact that while dealing with data, while dealing with, with people's uh, health and privacy, and at the end of the day, it's still a right that humans and all of us have, um, that still needs to be taken into account. And I think that is a, uh, a message that has emerged more or less clearly. And there is an element of, of consensus, I think, on a worldwide basis, at least mm-hmm. um, in Europe and, and other parts of the world that I'm yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's certainly um, it makes makes sense, and it's the response you'd, you'd you'd hope for, I think, from kind of forward thinking regulators, and um, yeah, we've certainly seen that in some cases. I, I suppose I should add that that doesn't take away from the fact that balancing privacy rights with technological change, with ambitions of organisations to do things better, um, is is never easy anyway. So whilst, as you're saying, Eduardo. Um, you know, privacy law isn't designed to stop us saving the world. It's not a question of just finding simple answers in our, you know, in our normal life before this crisis. So things like employment and privacy um, often brought up situations that were um, a balance or, you know, not obvious in terms of how to resolve things like employee monitoring. Um, uh, is a classic example, you know, what's the right balance to take? What's the right level to take? So in that, in that, perspective i said thinking about employment in this new way of working where we're all at home what are some of the things that have come up that just aren't easy to resolve for organizations for employees um but but, you know you probably weren't getting questions on two months ago what are some of the situations you've you've talked about with clients and other colleagues so if we if you look at the employee monitoring side of things and and i take that in the widest possible mm-hmm. sense, from um, uh, monitoring uh, our our health, our comings and goings, our interactions with others, our ability to work from home. So the, the employer is trying to learn more about our about our lives in order to manage their businesses better. That's what it comes down to. So once yep. again, the the principles are not that difficult because it's about. If, when you look at it, it's about transparency, it's about necessity, it's about proportionality. And when you look at those things, what that means in practice is, so tell your employees, I think uh, what good employers will have done, and to be honest, I've seen that with my own firm, is constant, constant information. You know, this is what we're doing. This is mm-hmm. what we are, uh, these are the steps we are taking around the offices. You don't have to say, oh, so-and-so, this partner, has this issue, of course you don't have to go to that level of detail. But you can say, um, we are uh, addressing um, uh, this outbreak in this particular location in this way. Mm -hmm. And information is important. Um, Encouraging people to really share, okay, 
I am self-isolating because my partner works for the National Health Service and she's been exposed to uh, people who are, who are infected and therefore we have mm. we're, so that type of information is really important and I think the transparency from the employer side of things was crucial it's also about to what extent all, all of this is needed and I think it's pretty clear where the line um, uh, is in terms of uh, why this is necessary and to what extent this is necessary. And again, it's the same apl applies to the proportionality. In the same way, it would be appropriate to, to, to let an entire global firm know that so-and-so uh, is infected. It, it may mm -hmm. actually be extremely relevant to tell the people that share the, the, the room or, or the floor with, with that individual, look, uh, it may be best for you for you guys to to go and work from home for the next week, you know. And and that today, of course, we're all working from home. But two or three weeks ago, that was the the right the right call. And uh, it was it, it was that sort of issue that, um, in my view, in my mind, proved the the way in which you. You can get that balance right because it is perfectly possible to get the balance right and, and to, to manage that. And the, the final point I would make about this is that, look, if anything, data, uh, and we can talk more about this and because of, of what we're going to find out over the next few weeks and months, but data is crucial to dealing with this crisis. So knowing what's going on uh, is absolutely the number one building block to the strategy of 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 getting rid of the, of the virus in 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 the world. So of course it's, it it needs to be used, and because data is part of the strategy, those of us who work in with data, knowing how to apply the right limits, how to write the, apply the right privacy and data protection measures need to be part of that strategy. So my, my, my message to, to, to be honest, all the listeners here is make sure you are, you guys are all part of the strategy of your organizations in the way this is being, um, dealt with because it is, we are, uh, we are at the front line, you know, you know, obviously all credit and all respect and, and, more than that, to to the health workers out there that are truly risking their, their own lives. But um, from a more managerial perspective, uh, privacy, privacy professionals or, or whatever uh, order are also in the front line of helping their organizations deal with the crisis. Absolutely. So let's let's move on, um, guys. Let's move on to talk about cybersecurity. So. We are, um, as, you, as we've been saying, much more reliant on technology. We've seen people who perhaps worked at home every so often now work, you know, five days a week at home. Um, we've seen companies, uh, won't name them, but the, the most popular um, uh, web conferencing applications and products become overnight sensations in terms of their user bases. And, you know, whilst I'm sure a lot of them have very robust cybersecurity programs, uh, anyway, that scale and the new types of user environments they're, they're, they're being exposed to have, I guess, created opportunities for uh, cyber criminals to, to try and exploit them. So I've certainly heard um, more concerns um, as everybody migrates to, to, to using conference facilities. 
about cyber attacks. Um, not not with, not least to say that because we're putting so much more of our own personal information uh, within those companies. I've also heard things about phishing attacks, uh, sadly, to do with, you know, um, potential cures or can you get tested and click on this button in a WhatsApp message and that kind of very malicious attempt to um, to hack somebody's device through, um, uh, sadly, very um, uh, cynic, cynical messaging. Um, so th- these are some of the things that we, you know, we've always been exposed to within the cybersecurity uh, arena, but they're, they're very acute and they're very different when you look at it through uh, what's happening at the moment. So what have you guys heard about these types of threats and uh, vulnerabilities people are facing and what's, what's new to comment on in this environment? So I think uh, it's a sad reality of the world is that uh, because of the coronavirus, the the bodies haven't gone away, you know. And someone from our, from, from some one of the partners from from Hong Kong was uh, emailing our, our global team a little bit, uh, uh, trying to be a little bit um, uh, cheerful and send this cartoon that shows. Uh, a picture a drawing of a, sort of a band of gangsters like the typical bodies of, uh, in a movie. And the quote was, well, for health and safety reasons, we'll be transitioning to cybercrime. And this is it. This is it. You know, cybercrime has never had it better because suddenly, at least for professionals uh, who um, go to offices and work in, in a typical uh, close network uh, environment in 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 those work um, places of work suddenly are distributed around the world, and lots of people are using their own personal devices or their home computers. They are uh, using different mechanisms to access their company networks, so that they are. The, the way in which they work and their routine um, in terms of the use of technology has changed in some cases very radically. And with that, there are, I guess, fantastic opportunities to trick people. You mentioned phishing. I think that that is probably the number one uh, threat because uh, we've never seen so many emails, for example, that look from IT or from uh, I don't know, this video yeah. conferencing company saying that, well, where, you know, your IT department has now asked you to, has asked us to, um, to ask you to download this. And uh, so mm. we, if we are being asked to download new software to, uh, to use new mechanisms and all that, the, there is a clear danger, um, that, uh, we will end up, uh, giving access or unauthorized access to the, to the wrong people. So I think, Clearly, there is a um, a sense, and I've seen that again with my own with my own firm, but also with with clients, that there is a sense that they are part of the role of the of the privacy professional right now is to ensure that people, all the employees, are very very aware and very sensitive of this um, greater risk to for for cyber attacks, cyber crime, and all that, all, all, all that type of action. Yeah, it's almost like the fabric of being in an office and just living amongst, or not living, but working uh, eight whatever hours a day, 
uh, amongst all of our colleagues gives us a, a, a kind of protection perhaps we just didn't think a lot about before. Because obviously, as you said, what if I receive an email and I'm sitting in my office uh, with all my colleagues, I'm probably able to ask the person sitting next to me or pop across the, the office floor to ask the IT team, hey, what's going on with this? But of course, it's harder to reach people and it's harder to communicate and, and just verify things at the moment. So I'm guessing that, just a guess, but I guess people will be more vulnerable for that reason because they're less able to share knowledge very quickly in a human level sense. Of course, we can jump on a call with, with someone, but it's not quite, quite the same, is it? So yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably something we're missing at the moment. Um, okay, so cybersecurity, a key issue. Um, let's talk a bit more about operations. Um, so I was thinking, Eduardo, while you're talking about employment, that um, I think a lot of the, I know you work personally with companies, big and small, public, private, you know, international and, and national, or a wide variety. But I guess by nature of the fact that they work with yourself and, and, and your firm, the clients you have must have a strong interest in, in maintaining good privacy um, programs for whatever reason, whether it's need or, or desire, you know, um, but they, they just, that kind of filter of the fact that they work with you must, must indicate that there must be a lot of other companies out there that um, probably are less uh, mature in their privacy programs. And they, they are now facing these kinds of employment issues, which, um, are challenging on their own and even more challenging in, in this situation. So I'm wondering perhaps also whether there are companies out there that are doing things, you know, uh, less than perfect because they, A, they're, you know, they're challenged and they haven't got a mature privacy program that can deal with it. And, and also um, these situations haven't really come, up, come about before. And that, that feeds into operations. So things like complying with subject access requests or general da data subject rights, responding to incidents in an adequate way and kind of uh, having a good breach notification program. So whether we're talking about, you know, the, the more mature clients or the, you know, the bigger privacy teams or even the smaller, less mature teams, how, what kind of things are you seeing in terms of operations within organizations for dealing with privacy? What's changing? What's, what challenges are companies facing and, and how are they dealing with that? I think it's a matter of focus. Um, in terms of what matters most. And that is true of a global uh, multi-billion organization and also of a small, a, a small um, uh, company and, 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 a, and a startup even. So I think uh, the question is, is what, do we, what do we focus on? And the, the role of those who are as I was referring to earlier, leading on, uh, on the fight against the uh, coronavirus from a data perspective, um, need to understand that uh, there are things that are going to take priority. So we were talking a, a minute ago about cybersecurity. So I think to, for privacy professionals to work alongside information security professionals and the IT and technology services of organizations, that, that needs to be a, a, a top priority. And it always is, but in the sense that it's a, it, it, the, the risk is greater. Um, it is also important, again, to, to approach, um, you know, as you call it, the operational issues as, okay, what kind of uh, data uses are more important to the organization right now? And how can we help with that? I think 
there may still be, uh, I don't know, data subject uh, access requests coming through or other type of uh, rights being exercised. And of course, they cannot be ignored. And of course, they need to. You need to pay attention to that. But I think you need to be able to to prioritize what matters next. And I think uh, the ICO itself has said, look, uh, we appreciate that there may be uh, a lack of resources right now. So we are prepared to be relaxed or to relax our um, uh, our enforcement and our watch. Oh, this type of um, level of compliance to the letter of the law. I think it's it's, an, it's a difficult message to give out because at the same time you're not saying this is not important and you should you can ignore it. Of course not. But yeah. you're, again, you're, you're trying to to provide an element of reassurance to those who are responsible. I mean, the thing is, these messages um, you can listen to those messages being responsible or being irresponsible. If you are irresponsible and if someone is saying to you, look, we can relax the norms, they, we interpret that as, well, this is just free for all. Uh, if you are a responsible uh, individual and a responsible organization, you listen to those messages and you say, thank you very much, uh, but obviously I'm not, and it's not that I'm gonna lower my guard, but I'm going to try to gain focus on, on what matters most. And I think that that's that's the the, the change uh, in in the mindset right now that I think needs to be applied. I think it was you know you mentioned the ICO guidance there, Eduardo. You know I was reading um, a statement that the Irish Data Protection Commissioner put out uh, about a week ago as well, just uh, particularly focused around uh, subject access requests. You know both for individuals and for organizations, you know, kind of highlighting um, an aspect of management of expectations, obviously, given uh, the period of time that we're going through, especially around uh, critical infrastructure services, you know, healthcare, social services, in case you are submitting a subject access request uh, to those types of organizations. But I think one of the interesting things that they highlighted, you know, is just to, as you say, bear in mind some of the you know, uh, existing mechanisms and responsibilities that are already provided for under uh, frameworks like the GDPR. You know, you can, uh, one of the things they highlighted is that, you know, you, you can take staged approaches to responding to a subject access request. You know, obviously, we're, we're all working from home. If you need uh, access uh, to hard copies of data that maybe you need to provide to a data subject, you know, perhaps you can uh, respond and advise them that, you know, this is what we're able to do at the moment. This is the time frame that we're currently looking at um, of getting back into the office. Obviously, even that is a little bit unknown. But, you know, ensuring that, you know, principle of transparency and open communications with the data subject, you know, to to keep them informed of how you are managing the request. And, you know, there are possibilities for even extensions, obviously, under the GDPR that, um, if need be, that you can extend the request for up to two months in order to be able to deal with it. And, um, I, you know, I think given the complexities that we're facing, um, as you say, you know, these practical guidances that are coming out from the ICO um, are are very useful. You know, they, they provide um, for these types of situations that 
normal everyday life you don't expect to arise, but this is how we can apply the GDPR in these very novel circumstances. Um, yeah, and I think there's, a, as you say, Alexis, there's a big difference between responding to a request in that way, you know, being transparent, being upfront and saying, you know, circumstances dictate that this is what we can do today and this is what we can't and we'll keep in touch rather than just ignoring the request. You know, there's obviously a big difference between those two uh, approaches, right? So I think, yeah, that's really important to note. I mean, I guess it comes back to the principle of, um, well, not the principle, but the idea of accountability in the end, you know, you, you know, to be ready to explain what you've done, why you've done it, if asked, um, you know, in a reasonable way. And I think that's, that's what, uh, as I said, that's what a, um, I think a mature privacy team will certainly do. And I just wonder whether some teams that still haven't quite ramped up, organizations, I should say, that haven't quite ramped up their privacy programs, even since GDPR um, came into force, yeah, might, might not take that nuanced approach. But it, we'll see. We'll see when the dust settles and, um, yeah, we'll see um, exactly how, how organizations have, have handled this. Okay. Um, one quick, quick point. Lots of noise coming from the US a couple of weeks ago about business groups asking for enforcement to, uh, sorry, enforcement of uh, CCPA to, uh, I'm not sure what the right term would be, to be paused or pared down or ex the enforcement uh, implementation, which I think was set for July to be pushed back. Um, Alexis, can you give us a couple of um, updates on that? What's happened and, and what's happened since? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, various, uh, you know, associations, trade groups, um, uh, other industry groups have, uh, been submitting some letters to the California attorney general, um, basically requesting an extension date to the enforcement of, uh, the CCPA, uh, due to COVID-19. Um, obviously, you know, at the moment, we're kind of going through a little bit of a, uh, also a transition period with the CCPA, um, under the regulations, which the attorney general can issue under them. Um, that's been happening since, uh, you know, October, November last year, we've had, uh, a second, uh, revised modifications to, uh, the CCPA regulations. And now organizations have also been, um, you know, submitting their comments on this set. So remains to be seen on when we'll actually see a final set of those regulations. But, um, you know, there's, <clears throat> we haven't seen, uh, you know, any hint from the Attorney General of late uh, that, you know, such an extension would come into effect. Um, but, of course, you know, in the times that we find ourselves in, you never know what what might change. Um, so yeah, we're keeping very close uh, contact, and you know, um, I, keeping a close eye on that to see whether uh, the attorney general does, in fact, um, allow for an extension. Good. Okay. Super. So yeah, we'll, we'll obviously keep uh, this as a theme throughout the next the podcast in the next few months. You know exactly what uh, regulators are saying. Of what they're doing, you should also add, and, and also what business groups or industry bodies are asking of regulators in terms of, you know, 
reasonable or unreasonable request to adopt uh, adapt their um, their activities uh, due to uh, how how the crisis develops. Yeah, interesting point to, to to monitor. Okay, so we're almost at the top of the hour. We've got a few minutes left, and I just wanted to finish today. Obviously, we've created this podcast today with a, a particular look at COVID nineteen and privacy uh, in some ways that we find particularly interesting or relevant for for listeners. I hope it's um, been been interesting and beneficial to you. I thought a nice way to finish would be to talk a little bit about the future. So, um, yeah, all sorts of um, perspectives on, on on the situation. You know, it's obviously tragic what's happening in, in many ways at the moment, but there's a, a different perspective, which is that it's a very surreal situation, the way the world is at the moment, in, in that normal life has paused. Everybody is geographically very much restricted. And it creates a very, um, well, um, unfortunate, but nonetheless, um, interesting opportunity to think about how the world will change in the coming years, probably a bit more of a longer term than the coming months, um, due, due to what's happening at the moment. That can be looked at in several ways. What will happen in transportation? What will happen in terms of our expectations of how we live our lives from a professional perspective or personal perspective? And um, it will also um, it's also relevant to, to, to discuss data um, privacy, but data is a, a wider field as well. So I wonder whether we could finish with a few thoughts from from each of you, um, just speculative or things you've been thinking about, and what lessons we're going to learn from this, or not even lessons, things we're going to take from this in terms of how we handle personal uh, data, uh, things like location data, how we interact, how we communicate then digitally with data, how we see risk in terms of uh, our own personal data and uh, that of other people. And yeah, just a few ideas on what, what things we might be, um, what things we might be feeling and thinking in the, in the coming years due to the crisis we're in at the moment. So Eduardo, I think it's an open question, but we'll start with you. What have you been thinking about in terms of the future recently? Wow, this is a, this is a philosophical question about, uh, <laughs> yeah. about the future and what's gonna happen, wow. Um, I, I think you are right in saying that the world has really paused or has to, to a large extent, stopped functioning. And the, the question I, I have is like, okay, no doubt at one point the, the world will start functioning again uh, in a more or less uh, progressive way. And, and But once it starts going, um, will how quickly will... Will you get? And I think against that background, and more linked to to your question, what I thought is first of all, technology hasn't really stopped evolving. I think um, the reality is innovation around technology and uh, developments. If anything, at times of crisis, and you know, and the same is things of other other crises that have happened in the history of, in the history of, of the world from epidemics to, to wars, technology evolves really, really quickly because it's seen as part of the solution and creativity, innovation, uh, uh, mm. you know, the, the, the ingenuity of, of, of the human mind never stops working. And that, I mean, it's a, it's a sign of, uh, I don't know, something in our evolution that keeps us going and, um, and makes us think harder. So then the point I'm, I'm making is that the, the technology, which is, the number one uh, driver 
in in the context of the use of data and data protection and privacy, that hasn't stopped. It will not stop if anything is moving faster than ever before. The other thing that I think is relevant, and again, the, this, this situation proves it um, very clearly, is that data is so, so valuable. And data, and I, I'm not talking about money here, data is valuable as a resource to sort out the greatest problems and the greatest challenges we face in, 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 in you know, humans. And therefore, the value of data and w w all that that represents uh, is still there and will continue to be there. And our role, again, when I talk about privacy professional, I talk about so many different people. And, in, and to be honest, lawyers are, the, are the, almost at the, at the bottom of the, of the queue, but all, everyone who is involved in, um, in managing the world of data and, and making its use again, a responsible use, that is not going to stop. And today, data professionals and data privacy professionals are very much um, in demand, and that will continue to be the case. So the technology will continue to evolve. The data will continue to be valuable. The biggest question I have in relation to data is uh, how globalization, data globalization will be affected. My my entire life, have, I have thought that data is like like water that uh, flows around uh, uh -huh. networks, and and the fact that the internet exists means that the definition is global. I don't think that principle will change, but a lot of the uh, reactions to to type of crisis have been around uh, closing borders and looking at what our governments are doing and looking at what our national health service is doing and the, the sort of the nationalistic approaches to dealing with crisis, um, which again, I guess is part of a, another trait of, of the human mindset, um, could also affect data. So we may see um, in, the, in the near future uh, some uh, challenges to data globalization, and by that I mean international data flows and attempts to keep data closer to home and things like that. And that sort of um, economic uh, nationalism uh, approach that that will uh, that will affect the data uh, the data world. So some big questions there, uh, some realities mm -hmm. that I think uh, will not change. But um, a lot, a lot to do for for all of us. That's for sure. Sure. Thanks, Iwana. That's great. And Alexis, just to finish with you, then. I mean, same same open question. Uh, how do you think uh, in the next few years, and slightly longer term, our lives and professional and personal lives will change as a result of this crisis in respect to data? Um, but maybe also uh, just to put a couple of your experiences in. The, I know your team have been tracking. A lot of um, the technological innovation that we've seen in the last few weeks about tracking where, you know, using location data to track where COVID cases uh, live and where, you know where their clusters are, etc. All of that raises, you know, raises pretty serious privacy concerns as well as being, you know, understandable in terms of what people wanting to protect themselves. So, how do you how do you see the future as well as what we're seeing today, which is a very quick reaction and using technology to do things that are slightly new and slightly can be slightly uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would, uh, I think Eduardo expressed it, you know, very well that, um, you know, these proposed solutions um, around the use of data, you know, it, it's uh, been as a result of, you know, the necessity, the creativity of, um, you know, humans, as Eduardo was saying, to, to find solutions. And um, I, I think that obviously, you know, um, as Eduardo said, you know, is that we've had, you know, many, many different um, historical events that, you know, we can point to where this continues to happen. And I think, you know, we find ourselves in another historic moment um, where uh, the future is uncertain. Um, and there has been a lot of innovation that's been coming out, um, obviously, different types of solutions because we find ourselves in 2020 um, and, you know, able to use the technology available to us and able to build off it. And obviously, as Eduardo was saying, again, you know, data forms a huge, huge part of that and an, a, an extremely important part of that in order to combat, um, you know, the circumstances. And, you know, it, it's it's probably things that we were, you know, have been thinking about, have always been questions in our mind, um, you know, especially around, you know, health apps and sensitive personal data, you know, these sorts mm -hmm. of issues, I think we started to see more and more of. I mean, you know, I remember you know, back when, you know, wearables you know, first started coming out and, you know, we were talking mm -hmm. about tracking fitness and health and, um, you know, concerns around the collection of that information. Obviously, you know, we've uh, still questions around it, but I think that we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to have to wait to see over the next couple of years how, um, how we've adapted to uh, circumstances of today in a couple of years' times, Eduardo said, you know, data globalization uh, may be impacted. There may be um, new things, uh, new laws, new regulations around uh, the use of data in certain ways. Um, there may be a need to regulate mm -hmm. um, data in, in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. So, very, very uncertain, but I think, um, again, as Eduardo highlighted, you know, the, there's never been uh, probably a, a bigger moment for um, privacy um, than today. I mean, and that was true, you know, that was already true. And I think, you know, today um, really, really does spotlight the issue. Yeah, and if I if I may say, I think sure. that is uh, there is always a silver lining to to everything. I think that <laughs> part of my philosophy in life, but <laughs> and there is a, a silver lining about, about about this. And the thing is, we are really looking hard, and we're going to be looking at this very hard in the coming months. Uh, the value of privacy as a right, because at the moment. Our, our, more, our most fundamental rights are being restricted. I mean, our freedom, my goodness, we, we cannot leave home, right? And, and listen, in, in the UK, we can go out for a run. Thank goodness for that. But in, 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 in Spain, um, where so many of my family and, and friends live, they cannot even leave home. I've got my 78-year-old my, my dad 
uh, stuck at home. He's counting the days like a, pr- a prisoner on the wall, almost making marks on the wall. And that is um, a, such a restriction of, of human rights that is making us a bit numb. But against that, there is a still a debate going on about, for example, what uh, is what's the limit of our right to, to, to privacy as part of all those rights that we have as human beings. And as uh, this, you know, the, the world is going in the direction of the development of apps and, and me- technical mechanisms to uh, help track our location and make sure that we are as protected as possible and all that. And that's really going to test the boundaries of, 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 that, of, of this right and, and the boundaries of how much we can control that. And that is, has to be a good thing because when you question things, you learn from them and you learn to value them. And I think that um, we will come out of this crisis valuing privacy and to be honest, many other rights like the right to, to the right freedom and freedom of, of assembly and, and getting together with, 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 with like-minded people and not like-minded people. All these rights that are so, it's true, so, so important to, to the way we, we are uh, as, as human beings uh, are being um, challenged. And when something is challenged, is, is, then it makes us think about it and it makes, it makes us value them more. And I think that, is, <laughs> that in itself is a big uh, positive thing, apart from all the environmental good things that are probably happening. But there you go. Super. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks both of you. Um, I guess, as you said, Eduardo, sometimes it's quite easy to feel uh, a bit numb at the moment, whether that's numb from your personal situation, just being geographically isolated, or even just numb at, you know, constantly um, either checking or wanting to check and listening to the news because, you know, it's just a cycle of, I know we get away. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's easy to feel numb. So I guess, Throughout this last hour, you know, we've had some really um, interesting, thoughtful, and hopefully uh, some positive uh, views on on the situation we have in terms of privacy in the COVID-19 crisis. I hope everybody's enjoyed it. And I think that for me, it's really affirmed the the purpose of this podcast, which is to um, get rid of that numbness and just provide a bit of um, meaningful, hopefully meaningful communication between us and everybody who's listening and that can continue um you know offline as well so yeah hopefully this has been um enjoyable for you listening uh, certainly been enjoyable for myself and i'm sure alexis and Eduardo as well just to say thanks very much again we'll be in touch soon we obviously aim to, to, to slightly reformat this in terms of that privacy podcast and how we record it in the next couple of months, but we'll certainly continue to do so and we'll continue to uh, reach out to you all and, and hope you reach out to us. Okay. Well, stay safe, um, be well, and yeah, I uh, hope you uh, have a great week and um, speak to you all soon. Thanks, Eduardo. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you, guys. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by... One Trust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells.